Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 44 of I Wish You Were Dead, a podcast about things that used to be alive. My name is Mike, and that is Gavin. Gavin, we're going to have a normal recording week, aren't we? Sort of. We're going to try our best to. We're, we're certainly going to give it a shot. Uh, <laughs> much appreciated, everyone, last week for uh, for bearing with us on what was a bit of an unusual uh, unusual series of events. It was probably more unusual for us than it was for you. Yeah, for sure. But uh, yeah, I hope everybody enjoyed the uh, volume four of Mike Takes the Wheel. But today we are getting back to our roots and uh, we're going to be doing some some hardcore science today from what I understand. Is that right, Gavin? Absolutely. So this will be almost certainly the most technical episode that we're going to do. So Perfect. I told Mike, I told Mike before we started that he's going to be working overtime to make sure that the the gibberish that comes out of my mouth is understandable to people who might be hearing some of this for the first time. So uh, that's that's Mike's job today is to make sure that I'm not too rambly <laughs> and too jargony. I feel like I've I have gotten generally better at that throughout the course of this podcast, but we'll <laughs> we'll see today. Um, but we're just gonna kind of jump right into it because uh, for a couple reasons. One. Because, because this episode is so dense, there's a lot to go through. So I don't really feel like in our hour or so, there's not really a ton of time for the calendar. And also I look through the calendar and there's nothing really interesting. So <laughs> we got to find uh, a new bit with the calendar. We do. Like we got, we do. You know, it's, it's October, so we can like finish out the year with the calendar and then for the mm-hmm. new year. For sure. So we got to find something else. I don't know what yet, but. Yeah, absolutely. We got to figure something out. But. Today, as I'm sure you saw from the title of this episode, we're going to be talking about evolution, what it is, what it isn't, which is really important, and also how it works. So this is going to be very much a, I wouldn't even say biology 101, I would say this is probably like 102. So this is Mm -hmm. slightly more advanced. Hopefully I have definitions in here for anything that we'll need to go over. And hopefully I, I will phrase them in a way that makes sense. But once again, that's what Mike is here for. So I'm um, here as the everyman. And just to be clear, this is not going to be an episode where we're doing like proving evolution true or evolution versus creationism. No, not at all. That is, yeah, we, I mean, I don't know what you have planned for the future, but I'm not entirely sure that that debate needs to be given a voice and certainly not on this particular podcast. Right. And it's, I, I will talk about it very, very slightly toward the end, just because evolution does not conflict with religion as much as most people think it does, because most people misunderstand evolution and think that it's something that it isn't. Okay. And so we're, we're going to clear up that misconception toward the end, but also like something that I've definitely learned while trying to do science communication is like, you can't make somebody interested. You know, you also can't make somebody believe something. You can say, here's why I think this is correct. And this is why science says this is correct. Do with that what you will. So to any people who happen to not believe in evolution who are listening, you know, maybe just stick it out and and listen to what we're going to go through here, because none of it, I believe is really controversial. It is evolution by itself is way less controversial than anybody thinks it is because it's way more boring than people think it is. Uh, (laughs) Hopefully this podcast episode will not be boring, but evolution as a top, as a topic 
while I find it very fascinating, I'm also incredibly detail oriented and this is what I do every day. So right, exactly. And hopefully we'll be able to, you know, to take that and kind of distill it down into, into some more digestible parts. You know? Absolutely. So let's so, get into it. In our episode about plate tectonics, only a couple of episodes ago, I said that plate tectonics is to geology what evolution is to biology. You did mention that. It is the overarching theory that ties all the separate branches of introspective science together. Evolution ties together ecology, genetics, uh, anatomy, every aspect of biology you know they make sense in their own self-contained unit but when you try to compare them to one another and make them fit together if you don't have evolution it, it doesn't work so our modern understanding of evolution really is you know so so crucial crucial in ways that i can't even really be really explain and when you say uh, modern, are you like how old is sort of our modern understanding of evolution? Does that go back to Darwin? Does he get more credit than he deserves? Like what? How old is this understanding that we have of evolution? So Darwin's part of it, a big part of it. Obviously, there's a reason why we talk about him so much. Uh, but there was this thing that we'll talk about if there's time. If there's time, we're going to go through a brief history of evolution. Uh, but it was called the New Synthesis essentially okay. where we combined all of Darwin's stuff from the 18, uh, late 1850s with the stuff of a person that you probably learned about in like high school biology called Gregor Mendel. Definitely heard the name before. He was the, the, the monk with the pea plants, that very classic experiment. He was doing his stuff at the same time as Darwin was, but okay. he published it in a language that people didn't read. And also biologists at the uh, German uh, somewhere over there. And I'm very sorry, there's there's a room service uh, cart moving outside my door right now. If you can hear that, my apologies. Because uh, I'm still in the hotel. Anyway, I think we'll be all right. Uh, yeah, so around the same time Darwin was doing his stuff, Gregor Mendel was living in his monastery and doing his uh, stuff with his pea plants because he was a mathematician. At the time, and this is my surprise a lot of people at the time biologists were not super into math they didn't really do math it was very much here's this thing i'm going to describe it i'm not going to really do too much experimental you know or or anything statistics on it not a whole lot of like cross-discipline stuff going exactly on. so when a lot of people even when people you know read the language that mendel published his stuff in and, and could understand the words, they didn't really understand the math because they weren't trained in math. So they were just kind of like, eh, whatever. And mm, then in, okay. the, in the early 1900s is when people, af after both Darwin and Mendel were both dead, people sort of rediscovered Gregor Mendel's stuff and were like, oh, because the one thing that Darwin didn't really ever come across he found out that traits must be inherited. Like that is something that we see, you know, if you have, you know, a blue bird and a blue bird have babies, their, their babies are going to be blue, you know? So right. it's like those traits must be inherited, but they didn't know the mechanism for it. Gregor Mendel put the math to it 
and said there are different traits, you know, that that go with each thing that we're going to talk about extensively. So I don't want to get too ahead of myself here. Yeah, so he found out kind of like the how of all of that. Right. He didn't understand, uh, you know, chromosomes or, uh, you know, DNA or anything yet. But he understood the math behind inheritance mm-hmm. in a way that Darwin did not because Darwin was not a math guy. Right. Okay. So when they put those two together, that is when our modern evolution or modern understanding of evolution uh, kind of got started. And roughly when was this? Uh, that I think was early 1900s, uh, 1910s, 20s. Perfect. So to start off, as I do with a lot of these, you know, episodes where we're not talking about like a specific group of animals, I'm really, really curious to hear Mike's definition of evolution as a lay person, mm-hmm. because most people who don't just say, I don't know about, like, if you ask the same question about play tectonics, if they're not saying, I don't know, they're usually giving a mostly right answer. Like the answer you gave in that episode was mostly right. Right. Not as much with evolution. So I'm really curious. Okay. So the, when you talk to a general person about evolution, what they're normally thinking is different is vastly more different than what from evolution actually is than plate tectonics. The idea most people mm-hmm. have on plate tectonics is closer to right than what most people have with evolution. Is that what from, you're trying to say? From my experience, yes. Okay. Because plate tectonics, once, obviously once you get into like the minutia of it, it's very complex. But like the right. overall, you know, concept is relatively simple. You know, the continents are on these big chunks of rock that move around and bump into each other. That's a relatively straightforward thing. We can see that happening. You know, you can Mm -hmm. put like a GPS thing on an edge of a continent and over, you know, even like a decade, you can measure that movement and then you can put a number to that, which is much, much harder to do with evolution unless you understand it properly. Right. So what is, what is your lay person's definition? My understanding of evolution, and this goes back to, you know, like Mr. Mancabelli's seventh grade science class. Right. And and probably before then. But it was basically that, um, like, every time um, cells get copied or cells divide, there are small changes that might take place in the DNA inside of those cells. And most of those changes either don't do anything or they are, they are harmful to the cell and they don't get passed on. But a few of them actually do like make a difference and make it easier for that cell to survive or that, um, that characteristic to survive. And those can get passed on into offspring. Um, and some of those cells will, you know, continue to be instead of just a mutation to be just sort of the, you know, the new standard for what those organisms are when that process gets repeated over the course of many generations. That was always kind of my understanding of evolution was as cells divide, there can be slight changes. Um, I suppose I'm also leaving out a lot of environmental factors where, you know, sort of getting to, you know, the famous phrase that you've debunked a little bit, survival of the fittest. Oh, we will um, talk about that today. <laughs> right, right. But like the, right, but sort of the idea of, you know, so that's um, kind of like cell mutation. Um, 
there's also again this is also just a lay person's um thinking here but the idea of certain environmental factors will will cause certain traits to you know die out or become you know less less desirable Mm -hmm. um, and you see them less often to the point where say with human beings it's become more desirable to be taller over time and so humans have just through kind of sexual selection evolved to be taller because of choices that humans make so i guess that's my answer is that it's a two-pronged thing there are um there are not conscious choices like with you know bacteria or single-celled organisms where there's just random changes that sometimes you know get passed on and become the norm and there can also be um you know choices that get made because of environmental factors um or just that you know conscious animals make to favor one trait over another to the point where that trait becomes far more dominant over another trait I know that you were worried about being rambly. I think that was a little rambly, but that is, <laughs> no, that that's is I think, okay. where I'm going to land. I think that's where I'm going to land on the my understanding of evolution. So what's really interesting is that you you didn't do what I thought you were going to do. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? That's, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> so most people uh, are under the impression that evolution and natural selection are the same thing, which they are not. Okay. That's not really what you did. See, you specifically talked about sexual selection, which is a different kind of thing that we will also talk about in a bit. Right. That's one thing I learned from my um, my like half a semester in anthropology class before I mm-hmm. failed so hard that I had to drop the course. <laughs> but I do remember uh, sexual selection as being a uh, is something they harped on, and I actually understood that part of it. Yeah, sexual selection is uh, definitely Lord knows a why, thing. Yeah. <laughs> we we will talk about that. Um, but the big thing that I wanted to touch on in what you said was uh, something about be like consciously choosing or consciously deciding. Right, and I, I don't like the way I phrased that, but mm-hmm. I'll, we'll roll with it for now. That can be somewhat true with sexual selection. Mm-hmm. But I really don't like using those phrases around evolution because it gives or reinforces the false uh, idea that many, many people have that evolution has like an end goal. I, you, I know you, I know you were not. Yeah, I know you were not doing that intentionally. Right. No, I, yeah, I've seen people, you know, smart people online um, say things like, you know, evolution, you know, there's no thought process to evolution. It just is right. And so something I want to get out of the way early, and like I said, I'm not going to go too much into uh, like the history of evolution. Other podcasts, actually, I have a little section in my notes here of recommending other podcasts where if you want to learn about the evolution of our understanding of evolution, there are lots of other podcasts. We'll put them in the show notes, but if anybody is curious, um, a podcast that I myself listen to a whole lot is called the Common Descent Podcast. I've talked with them a bit before. Um they have several episodes that go into this. Uh, episode 28, which is about Charles Darwin. Episode 54, which is about another guy named Alfred Russell Wallace, who uh, I love. He is great. He was just sort of a regular guy who was just kind of an adventurer who traveled around the world around the, the same time Darwin was alive and came up with natural selection so by himself. 
wrote a letter to Darwin and was like, hey, this is a really neat idea that I came up with. And Darwin was like, oh, no, I need to publish this now so he doesn't steal my thunder. Um, but they ended up kind of being buddies later. Uh, uh, and then episode 56 well, about, good. you know, the basically just all about the evolution of evolutionary theory. And then there's an entire podcast that are called Discovering Darwin that literally is just about Darwin. So um, we'll put links to those in the show notes. So they do go through this much better than I will. They've been podcasting for much longer. (laughs) So (laughs) we might get into some of it at the end, but if you want to learn more about how we got to understand evolution the way we do, go listen to that. Um, Yeah, one thing that I wanted to get out of the way early was the common misconception that... Like I said, evolution has a goal and that things can be, you know, quote unquote, more evolved than other things. Because technically, every living thing on the planet is as evolved as everything else. We've all been evolving for the same amount of time. Mm -hmm. Since that first single celled thing that we were all descended from, you know, three point however many billion years ago we've all been evolving the exact same amount of time. So nothing, whether it's you or a mushroom or a sponge, we are all equally evolved. So, but when people are saying that, are they, they are trying to say something like more, more They usually usually mean more complex. Yes. Okay. Which again is a term that I also don't necessarily like. Why is that? Because what, what, what people define as complex is kind of arbitrary. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's just not the the best way of describing it. I think the proper term would be derived, which is just the more different than what you used to be, or the more the more different you are than your relatives. Okay. For example, humans are very derived because we walk upright. We walk upright. We have our uh, spinal column meet our skull on the bottom instead of in the back. That's really weird. Um, we're very derived relative to like chimpanzees because we have way less hair. Things like that. We're really different. But that doesn't mean that we are more evolved. And there's a really okay. big historical reason for that. Um, most of the early people to sort of talk about evolution and organize you know, different groups of organisms. Um, or they didn't call it evolution at the time, but people like Aristotle. He right. made this thing that I believe was called the Scala Naturae, which is the scale of nature. Basically, low, you know, quote, unquote, low life forms, you know, less derived life forms at the bottom, going all the way up to humans at the top. Humans were at the top of the ladder. Obviously, we would say that because we're humans. Um, mm-hmm. but that kind of human centric thinking though is kind of what we're trying to avoid. Exactly. Right. Okay. Um, yeah, but we're, we're getting a little off topic here. So, okay. Circling back to what is evolution? So I think there's a really easy way to describe it. That is, is really good for just a very base level understanding. And that's called descent with modification. So you are descended from something 
but yet you are different than it because over the generations, it's been modified, you know, sometimes very slightly, sometimes very closely related species, you know, two species in the same genus can look almost exactly the same, but they're just tweaked just a little bit. And so just to be clear, that would, you know, that would include something as basic as like a, you know, a parent-child relationship, you know, that's descended with, you know, some modifications, correct? Absolutely. Okay. And so, so that's a very simple definition. Um, a, a more technical and more correct definition, I need to actually provide some definitions for first. So most people are at least familiar with the term gene, right? Like like genes, your your genetics. Yeah, I, I, I if you asked me to define it, I would do a horrific job okay. defining it. But I, I think I've got a rough understanding of what those okay. are. So most people actually confuse that with something else that I'll define in a second. But a gene is a section of DNA that controls the production of a protein. Sometimes that can be how different enzymes are in your body. Sometimes that can be things like eye color. So for, for the example uh, that I'm going to use for all these definitions, let's go with eye color. So the gene okay. is for eye color, not what color it is, just the section of DNA that controls eye color. That is the gene. The allele is the different versions of that gene having brown eyes versus blue eyes versus green eyes. So the the allele is the like the manifestation of the genes? Yeah. I um, feel like I remember in class hearing like this was it like genotype and phenotype or something? Yes. Am I thinking of the right thing? Okay. Genotype is what your DNA says and phenotype is how it is expressed. So just going back to a real rough example of like recessive genes. So blue mm -hmm. eyes is recessive to brown eyes. So if you have one of each allele, the brown eyes will be expressed, but the blue will not. So your genotype is that you have one allele of each, but your phenotype is that you are brown eyed. Like myself, because my mom has brown eyes and that's recessive. I know that I have to have a, even though I have brown eyes, I could have kids that have blue eyes because I have that recessive trait, for example. Mm -hmm. So we've talked about alleles. We've talked about genes. How we measure alleles is something that we call the allele frequency, and that is sort of the amount of individuals in a population with a particular allele. For example, if you have a small town of 100 people, 99 of them have brown eyes. One person has blue eyes. That is an allele frequency of 1%. That makes a lot of sense and seems to be really simple. That, that is oversimplified for sure, but that is imagine. very basically. So evolution in, it, in its most basic sense is the change in allele frequencies in a population from one generation to another. That, that's literally it. So if that same small town, that person with blue eyes has five kids. So now there are six people out of 105 now because there are five new people. So six out of 105, that's roughly six and a half percent. 
or so, thereabouts, mm-hmm. that change in allele frequency, that that is evolution. It is not more complicated than that. Okay. So ju- so it is. So when we're talking about evolution, we are talking about that expression of genes, not the genes themselves. No, it is. It is the the genes. I'm I'm using brown eyes and blue eyes as a simplification. All of those brown eyed okay. people could could have a blue eyed allele. Mm-hmm. In this scenario, I'm saying that they don't, just for simplification. Um, okay. But say, you know, Gen X, you know, the people slightly older than Mike and myself say they have a blue eyed frequency of 10%. Millennials such as Mike and myself have a blue eye frequency of 15%. Are these real numbers? Or are we making this up? I'm just making this up. Okay. Um, that is evolution. Gotcha. Okay. That's, that's all it is, which like, this is what makes me as somebody who like understands this and works with evolution very like often when people are like evolution doesn't happen, I'm like, that is just demonstrably wrong because that is the definition of it. And we can measure that. It could be something as simple as, you know, um, hair, hair color. You know, if you go to Ireland, I, I would assume that the percentage of red hair alleles is smaller than it was a thousand years ago. Because there are more people there that are not redheads, mm-hmm. presum- presumably. So it's like that is something that is demonstrable. Like we we can see that, we can measure that. This is something that we know happens. And so that's what evolution is. So let's talk about what most people think it is, which is natural selection. Because like I said, though these are not the same things. Right, right. Natural selection is one of the mechanisms that drives the allele frequency changes. There are many different mechanisms to it, but this is one of the things that, you know, leads to that causes, you know, an increase in blue eyed population from Gen Xers to millennials. For example, say that, say that one more time. So, in in the example I gave before, Gen Xers have a ten percent blue eyed frequency. Millennials right. have a fifteen percent. Right. Natural selection is one of the things that causes that change. Okay, it is a piece of the puzzle there. Yes, it is not the only thing that can cause those changes not by a lot but is arguably depending on who you ask it is the most important or not the most important depending on who you ask a lot of people can have we, different opinions on this i think we've done this before but can we get a definition of natural selection we sure can more yeah more than just you know survival of the fittest like like what what are we actually talking about when we say natural selection so the this is a very very textbook sort of scenario for natural selection. So always more offspring are produced than could possibly survive to adulthood. That's just kind of a given fact of nature, you know? Mm -hmm. And so some individuals are naturally better at surviving to adulthood 
and therefore reproducing than others are. Some are just naturally better able to survive and have kids. The ones that have traits that allow them to have more babies before they die are, quote, better fit for their environment. That is where survival of the fittest comes from. It does not actually mean, you know, stronger, faster, you know, better. It means if you have something that allows you to have, you know, even like 2% more babies than the average for the competition, you're more fit, you're doing good. This could be, so like this could be, if we're thinking into nature, somebody, or I shouldn't say somebody, you know, a a particular, you know, animal is faster or has sharper teeth and is able to kill more. But it could also be just somebody is, you know, a peacock has, you know, cooler feathers to attract the opposite sex. Or an animal looks really cute and humans decide to put a bunch of money into (laughs) saving it as opposed to, you know, some other animal that, you know, looks disgusting and we don't like it. Or, or any other thing, you know, with human being, you know, being taller makes it more likely for you to um, pass on your genes. Like, all of those would count so, for natural selection, right? Under actually, no, none of okay. those things would. The peacock, we, the, the peacock we will circle back to okay. in a little bit. The humans saving things, I think, would technically go under artificial selection, which is like domestication and selective breeding. I didn't actually put any of that in my notes, but that's something that is relatively important. Um, okay. Not natural selection because anything that modern day humans are involved with is not natural selection. We are very good at not doing natural things. Um, okay. And then the taller humans having more babies probably goes into sexual selection as well. Okay. So... Let me give you some so just what, generic yeah, give, yeah, examples. Give me, give me some generic. That's Yeah, that's what I need right now. So something that could make you more fit could be anything from having slightly darker eyes in a brighter environment like a desert or a savanna. Having darker eyes helps you see a little bit better in high light because it blocks out some of the light and prevents some like glare. So just mm-hmm. being able to see a little better. Having okay. blood cells that carry a little bit more oxygen, a little bit more efficiently. Something like mm-hmm. that that you, that you can't even see. Um, getting more nutrition from your food. You know, if you get, you know, 10 grams of nutrition from eating 20 grams of food, but your other members of your species only get five grams of nutrition from that same amount, you have to eat less and therefore can spend more energy on having babies. So it's... Okay, so it is your main problem with the way survival of the fittest gets used is like what people are counting as fittest. Um, right. Right. Which is a lot, which is you know, sort of a more for lack of a term, theatrical um, definition of fittest instead of in some cases, really boring things that you wouldn't even notice unless you really mm-hmm. went looking for them and knew how to find them. Right. So one of my favorite sort of things to debunk survival of the fittest actually falls into sexual selection, which we'll talk about again. We'll, we'll circle around to it, but there's actually a species of fish that, you know, the males come in two forms. There's one that is much bigger than the females. 
and basically fight each other for access to females that are bigger, very noticeably different than females. There's another form that looks almost exactly like a female. And they can sneak in because the big one thinks they're a female. The the other big males think they're a female. Uh Obviously, if the one that looks like a female isn't having babies, they wouldn't look like that. That would be a trait that is weeded out. But they're being obviously just as successful as the, the big, stronger, you know, other males. So they're just as fit by the definition of fitness, which is just how many babies are you having? They're just as fit as the other big, strong males, even though that is typically not how, uh, fitness is typically talked about outside of, you know, people who understand evolution. Right. So, um, having all of these advantages like the, the darker colored eyes or the, the better, more efficient blood that those don't guarantee that you'll have more babies, but they just increase the chances. It nudges up the normal curve. Exactly. And so those traits get passed on to those babies who then also have a better chance of having babies themselves. This is why things like albinism, you know, being albino is really, really rare in the wild even if the rest of your alleles are like top of the line, your blood super efficient, your digestive system super efficient. If you die before you get to have babies, none of it matters. Albino animals do not tend to do well because if you're a prey animal, you're very conspicuous and you stick out. So you typically get eaten before you get the chance to have babies. <laughs> right. Or if you're a predator, you're also very conspicuous and you can't hide from your prey. So they see you coming and avoid you. So just because, you know, some traits are great, that doesn't guarantee that they get passed on. It just sort of nudges the scales in their favor a bit. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that, that is very broadly natural selection. Next, we're going to talk about sexual selection, which is another mechanism. So just another... Now we get to the good part. <laughs> It's, it's less exciting than you think it is. Um, so this is sort of a side branch of natural selection. So natural selection is adaptations that help with outcompeting others for resources or evading predators and things, right? More or less things outside of your species. Sometimes it gets into your species if you're like com- competing for space uh, with others of your same species. But sexual selection is for traits that increase your ability to be chosen by the opposite sex of your own species to be able to mate. Basically something that makes you look good for the ladies and or men, respectively. Uh, And since you brought up peacocks earlier, they're a great example. Because if you have ever seen a pea hen, they're very drab. They're like grayish brown. They're really not very conspicuous. Then there's the peacocks who are bright blue with that really long tail plumage. And obviously there's a reason for that. <laughs> you know, it's not to like attract a mate, right? Exactly. And so, however, that bright color and that long tail make them very good prey. 
you know, they're very easy to see and they're relatively easy to catch. They can't fly as well. They can't run away as well uh, as the females. But obviously the ones who have the big bright feathers and the big tail uh, must just be having more babies than the ones without those features. Otherwise it wouldn't get passed on. And that must be the females being like, Ooh, you've got that big six foot tail. Come here. Uh, Mm -hmm. So uh, another example is things like really obnoxious mating calls for things. Um, (laughs) Whether it be frogs or even things like uh, elk have like a really obnoxious mating call. If you've never heard it. Really? Um, Yeah. It's really like, it's very startling if you're like around it and you don't know the elk is there, but that's also why this is part of sexual selection. Because if you didn't know the elk was there, you do now, uh, including things <laughs> like wolves and mountain lions, you know, it's very obnoxious and very, meant to be loud, you know? Yes. So obviously um, if the ladies didn't really love the super loud, obnoxious mating call, that it would have been selected against, it, it would have been selected against because, if a mountain lion hears this really obnoxious mating call, they're going to be like, Hey, dinner. Um, so <laughs> things, se- sexual selection is really commonly used for things in the fossil record for just really things that we don't have a better explanation of. Uh, for example, uh, there are some species of, uh, actually it's happens a lot in dinosaurs where it's like, there's this big feature where it's like, we don't really know what it's for and we don't have anything around to compare it to today. So it's like, must be for sexual selection, must be for, you know, looking good for the opposite sex. Um, Some examples of that I think are like Triceratops and and cousins frills, like the big thing on their head. Um, Is that just an easy way to explain something that we don't really know? Yes. It's used way too much. Um, with fossils if it's like okay maybe maybe we're just not being creative enough but using sexual selection as just kind of a blanket this is why is uh used way too much gotcha all right so that is the the two big ones that most people most people have definitely heard of uh natural selection and i'd say a decent amount of people might have heard or might remember it from like high school but about sexual selection so now we get into some of the stuff that's like... Some of us don't remember anything about sexual selection <laughs> from high school. Uh, the, the jokes are hitting home. Um, I look, I've been controlling myself <laughs> for a while on this one, but like sexual selection. It, it's exactly it what really, it sounds like. It's not, it's not all that hard to understand. Correct me if I'm wrong. When I'm thinking of um, sexual selection, it seems like it sort of falls under a heading of natural selection, but it is yes. so big and it is so... Like it is such a dominant, you know, kind of subheading that it belo- it deserves its own kind of separate conversation, even though it falls under that natural selection umbrella. So, yes and no. I would say big as in on the species that it affects, it affects them very strongly. Right. But like there are a lot of species where the males and females look basically the same. So it's like, unless there is like a noticeable amount of sexual dimorphism, you know, the, the males and females looking different, there's probably not a lot of sexual selection going on there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, it could be a lot of behavioral things. Like I know, um, 
different like mating dances and things uh, in like insects. That's not really a morphological thing. That's not really a shape thing. That's just a behavior. That is sexual selection. You know, the males with the better, more desirable dance uh, will get chosen more frequently to have babies instead of eaten. Um, <laughs> so not everything comes down to just the shape. A lot of behavioral things that are instinctual uh, are, are subject to sexual selection as well. But I would say like a lot of species don't necessarily uh, get affected by sexual selection all that much. Okay, that's that's actually good to know. Um, but yeah, so now we get into some of the more obscure ways that evolution sort of happens because these ones are kind of just like things that you don't really think about but can have a really big effect. So the next one is called genetic drift. And this is more or less just like the lottery and statistics. So... This pretty much only happens with traits that aren't really under much of a selection pressure anyway. You know, it's not this genetic drift wouldn't really happen to something like, you know, if you can run 1% faster or something, that wouldn't really be subject to genetic drift because if you can run that much faster, you can you might be able to escape a predator that you couldn't before. Um this would be something like I don't know, like number of eyelashes or something. Something, something that nobody would even notice, never mind care about. Right. But this can develop into something if, if something just through genetic drift happens to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the statistics I have to work out. I'll explain the statistics part in a sec. Um, it can develop into something that then becomes subject to, you know, natural selection or sexual selection. Um, but typically it's mostly talked about with things that aren't, really affected by those two as much. So with the statistic stuff, say you have um, a bag of 99 marbles, and I'm choosing 99 to make the math easier. Um, Perfect. So you have a bag of 99 marbles. 33 of them are black. 33 of them are yellow. 33 of them are brown. You pull out 10. That might not work out to being... A third, a third, a third. In fact, it will not work out to being a third, a third, a third because of how the number 10 works. Well, okay, if you pull out nine marbles. Okay. If you pull out nine marbles, you know, over time, yeah, probably, it'll work out to be roughly a third, a third, a third over time. But Mm -hmm. it is entirely possible to pull out, you know, nine of all the same color. And so... That's how genetic drift works. It's just those little random lottery statistical things where it's like sometimes, um, you know, this is actually really commonly talked about in terms of like island colonization by different animals. So it's like if you have a population of lizards, you know, a third of them are black, a third of them are yellow, a third of them are brown, but some get sent to the island and then no yellow ones get sent out. So they're just black or brown. That's all you've got to work with now. Those were the marbles get, that got picked out of the bag. Right. Is this sort of what I was talking about with like the, the tiny mutations that can take place? Not quite. We'll talk about mutations a bit uh, in a little bit. Okay. Um, 
this is just like overtime, not mutations, but just some traits like just kind of are selected against to the point where they. This, this isn't even selection. This isn't oh. even selection. This is just okay. random chance. Okay. So say the, you know, one that is real attractive to the ladies happens to be, a, you know, um, happens to have hooves. Say it's some kind of deer has hooves that are like slightly darker, but that's not why the ladies like them, right? You know, sometimes okay. That, so this is incidental. Yeah, to, this is completely, right. you know, not okay. really involved in too much of other kinds of selection going on. Gotcha, gotcha. This okay. is literally just pure statistics. Perfect. The next one is called gene flow which is more or less just like the other things in life that just kind of happen. Um, mostly this is used for when alleles leave the gene pool for one reason or another, not because they're selected against, just because of regular life things. Um, in that small town analogy that I was using earlier of 100 people, uh, if one of those 100 people move away from work or, or, or for college or for work or something, and never comes back, they're out of that town's gene pool and the removal of their alleles changes the allele frequency, which is evolution. Mm -hmm. Okay. And also on the other hand, if somebody moves to that town, they bring new alleles with them and change the frequency. Uh, this is also kind of like if somebody just dies for not like selection reasons, if they get like strike struck by lightning or like a rock falls on them or something, they're no longer available for reproducing. So uh, gene flow, genetic drift are kind of just like a, I've heard them described as like an uncaring universe sort of things where it's like they affect evolution, but not in the ways that most people think about when they think about evolution. It's sort of like... It... I'm trying to, think. I was going to say like the boring ways, but that's not the right way to put it. Like, because they can be things, really important. Right. Like things that are not easily, you know, categorizable. Mm -hmm, for sure. Right. They're, they're very hard to quantify. Right. Cause you, you know, whether somebody getting struck by lightning or moving out of town or having a trait that happens to be like having a trait that has nothing to do with, um, how desirable they are. And yet, you know, it gets passed on because of some other trait that, they have that is desirable you know right. that's th they those all seem like you know wildly different things but they kind of all fall into that just incidental well you know we do need to explain this bucket right and you know there are lots and lots of genes that are expressed in ways that like don't really affect selection where it's like say you and I have slightly different proteins in our digestive system. They're slightly different, but work just as well. They're going to get passed on. You know, genetic drift might be how the set of pro the, the genes for the proteins that I have become more common just due to like random chance. You know, they could, mm -hmm. they work equally fine. They're just different, but the frequencies of them will change over time. Right. So these are all the ways that allele frequencies can change, but we haven't really talked about adding new alleles, which by definition must happen. You know, 
Um, it is, I don't, I don't really think that it's a thing. Uh, it probably is, but off the top of my head, I don't know that it is, but of like a gene for like hairlessness in chimpanzees. Granted, we didn't evolve directly from chimpanzees, but we are much more hairless than they are. How did that happen? And the answer is something that we've talked about a couple times so far, and that is mutations. Okay. A really good let's, analogy. Let's go on now. Now we get into it. Mm-hmm. A really good analogy that I've sort of, that I took some time to think about here was that evolution is sort of like a blender, right? I'm sure. Alleles are the things in the blender. Okay. In this metaphor. Mm-hmm. The different mechanisms, natural selection, sexual selection, genetic drift, gene flow, those are the different buttons that you push on the blender. Mutations are adding new ingredients to the blender. You're okay, adding and... in new options for genes. All right. So this would be like, at, you, know, you know, we have, you know, brown hair, blonde hair, red hair, all of a sudden writing in green hair out of nowhere. Right. As an option. And how does that happen? How do these mutations wind up taking place? So I will say that is never how it is depicted in any movie. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So mutations that affect the appearance of like an individual, like say I get a mutation and this would never happen, but I grow a third arm. That, that does, like I said, that doesn't happen. Okay. Or, or like you just said, growing green hair not really a thing right mutations in order to be passed on must be passed on through your sex cells your sperm and or egg respectively um and so this is gonna be a little technical but stay with me here so mutations are changes to the dna and specifically changes to the dna sequence the letters these specifically A's, T's, C's, and G's is how you see DNA represented very oftenly. All of those, those four letters stand for different, uh, like chemical compounds that make up your DNA. But if you basically can understand that DNA is just a sequence of those four letters in various orders, that's how DNA works. Okay. A mutation is a change in what should be, say, for example, an A gets changed to one of the other three letters. When your Mm -hmm. DNA is read by your cells to produce amino acids, which produce proteins, um, that's how how your body produces proteins, is there's a a little uh, organelle that reads your DNA, and it's like, okay, the DNA right here says add this amino acid. I move a little further down the DNA that says add this other amino acid and so on and so on. And amino acids, when they're strung together like that, form proteins. Right. And so if a mutation to one letter of your DNA changes, it will change whatever amino acid was supposed to be added at that particular spot to, to a new one. Right. It's, will change what the protein is, but usually not the entire protein that it was making. Protein, especially really big, complex ones, uh, 
the way the way proteins are shaped is really complex and I don't really even understand it so I'm not really going to go into it um but for really really large proteins changing one amino acid probably wouldn't make a ton of difference and so having that one mutation might change the protein but probably it wouldn't like kill you or probably wouldn't make you grow green hair or something like that but if would the you even notice it? Like, is it possible that it, like that happens and just like, yeah, that was a thing. It happened, but nobody noticed. Usually, no. I would say obviously there are certain exceptions to that. Um, in in certain areas of the DNA, yeah, it can be really bad. Um, I don't have any particular examples of particularly bad, like one base change, you know, one switch uh, mutations being really bad. But I'm sure that there are some. Um, okay. If the mutation is really bad, uh, the animal probably won't even survive being born and obviously won't get to pass on that mutation to its offspring. And so, generally, mutations are either neutral or beneficial because the ones that hinder you aren't getting passed on. Aren't just aren't getting passed on. Right. And so the way that mutations happen is sometimes the way that you're thinking, you know, being around radioactive stuff. Um, sometimes it's just radioactive uh, sections of rock. Like I know, for example, uh, around the area where I used to live in South Dakota, not like where I used to live, but in like the mountains nearby, there are certain rocks where like uranium used to be mined. And granted, it's still a really low percentage of uranium, but the rocks there are weakly radioactive if you were if you were like a lizard or a snake and spent like all of your entire time there you probably have a higher rate of mutation than if you weren't there you know but again Mm -hmm. it's not like a snake is going to grow a second head from that it'll probably (laughs) just get radiation poisoning and die (laughs) (laughs) okay then um but uh it can cause a mutation that is definitely survivable in you but mutations that you sort of acquire are just usually not passed on because they're not part of your sperm cells um, or, or egg cells. So usually mutations gained throughout an animal's life are not passed on. The mutations that are passed on are the ones that happen when their parents' sperm or egg were made. That is where a lot of mutations can happen. And so usually, I'll, I'll explain this as, as quickly as I can. Uh, because this is like some like junior in college, depend well, depending on your college, but sophomore or junior in college level stuff. So when your cells replicate, which happens all the time, you know, you have a cut, your cells replicate to heal it. Um, your, your, all of your cells kind of replace themselves every so often anyway. Um, so when your cells replicate, they can sometimes make an error and swap one letter for another. It's just an accident. Sometimes that happens. But if it's not in your sex cells, it doesn't matter. Okay, so those mutations that take place, as long as they're not happening in the sperm or the egg, it's, you know, it is confined to that one single species. And that's not even the species, just the one individual. That's what I meant, the one individual. Yeah. But how this happens when sperm and egg are concerned so your, everybody kind of knows what a chromosome looks like. It looks roughly like an X, right? 
Yeah. How how that actually works is imagine it like have have you seen like the long clown balloons before they turn them into a balloon animal? Just like the a, big, a long, long cylinders. Tool. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So imagine that instead of being an X like that, chromosomes are two of those sort of rubber banded together in the middle. So two distinct things. One right. one of the balloons is from your dad. The other one is from your mom. And so when you make your um, sperm cells or egg cells, before they split, they sort of swap a section of them. It's called uh, independent assortment. So you could end up with producing a sperm or egg that has your dad's gene for hair color and your mom's gene for eye color on the same chromosome. Is that making any form of sense? I can, can you go through that one more time? Just cause I want to make sure I'm, I'm picking up each part of that correctly. Absolutely. So in this metaphorical chromosome, that is these two balloons rubber banded together. Right. How do, how do chromosomes normally... Oh, wait. Oh, hold on. So this is... Correct me if I'm wrong. So each parent, mm -hmm. you know, mother, father, give 23 chromosomes to their you know, offspring, correct? Is that what we're talking about? Yes. And so, so each, each of those 23 have to get paired up for a total of 46? Right. And so the way they get paired up, you know, each chromosome has to get banded together. You've got, you know, each individual chromosome is like a long tube. Mm -hmm. The one from the father, the one from the mother have to, you know, get paired up. Right. And turn into a little X. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, the father's DNA is in one, the mother's DNA is in the other. And, um, and that, becomes part of the DNA of the offspring. So, pardon me, I'm actually, I read my script wrong. Whoops. Oh, okay. So the, the balloon metaphor does not work. Forget I said that. I'm very oh, sorry. Okay. This, this is a very confusing episode as it is, so I'm very sorry. Okay. Um, but more or less. Noted. You have one chromosome from your mom and one chromosome from your dad for each like number chromosome. When you produce sperm and egg cells, their DNA kind of mixes because they stay separate in the rest of your cells. They're both there, but they stay separate. Whereas they sort of can swap alleles for each other when you produce your sperm and egg cells. Does that make sense? Can you give an example? So say, and I, I don't think that hair color and eye color are on the same chromosome, but in this okay. example, let's pretend that they are. Sure. So my dad for in this, again, in this example has brown hair, brown eyes. My mom has blonde hair, blue eyes. When, uh, you know, I have both of the, their genes in me both of those sets of alleles, I could produce a sperm that has my dad's hair allele 
but my mom's I allele. Mm-hmm. They they can swap for each other. Okay, because you if, need to, like, you can only pick, you know, either the genes you got from your father or your mother. And I don't say, like, pick literally, but. Right, yeah. Right, yeah. You know, in your sperm cell, you can only, you know, you can only have either the hair gene of your mother or the hair gene of your father. And you have you have both of them, but only one of them is typically expressed. R- right, but like when you're you know in a sperm cell, like only one mm-hmm. of those is going into the sperm cell, right? Yes, yes. And you know, it could be that you've got the father's traits for both, or the mother's traits for both, or it's entirely possible that you pick you know the hair color from one and the eye color from the other. Right. Okay. I think I got that. When and 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 when this happens, the chromosomes physically—it's not like the part is like snipped and taken over to the other one. They're like physically touching each other, and there's some funky stuff going on there on like a cellular level and like atomic oh. level even. Oh boy! And so, but when that happens, sometimes you can take—you know—one of the chromosomes can take a bit too much. It might take more than just that one snippet that it was supposed to, or it could take less than it was supposed to. Mm-hmm. Sometimes when this happens, th- that is it. That is a mutation. A lot of times, when big segments of DNA are taken like this, that usually results in, uh, you know, that egg or sperm not being viable. But sometimes that can result in new uh, mutations that are either neutral or beneficial. And so that is sort of how mutations mostly happen is when sperm and egg cells are made because our bodies are not perfect. They're pretty good at catching things, but they're not perfect. That's how like cancer happens. Uh, You know, cancer is just a mutation that your body doesn't catch and that it kind of just goes out of control. Your body is also not perfect at catching mistakes that it makes when it produces sperm or egg. And those mutations are what add new alleles to the uh, the genetic blender, as it were. So that is what allows for new things to be added to be played with, with the other with the actual mechanisms of evolution. How how am I doing? I you've lost me a little bit, but okay. I'm, I. I feel like I, you know, I can internalize a lot of this, even if I can't, um, even if I have a hard time, like, parroting it back to you. I feel like I've internalized a decent amount of this. Okay. And so more or less, when one population of a species becomes unable to reproduce with other populations, that is when it becomes a new species. We've talked a bit before on this podcast that like what is a species is a really philosophical question that biology doesn't really have a great answer to. Mm-hmm. But that is more or less what most people who study at least living organisms will agree on. When two populations can no longer reproduce, that they are genetically different enough that they warrant being called different species. And that that is how species sort of new species happen. Usually it happens when like there's a river or a mountain range that separates two populations, you know, one side of the mountain might be drier. So they, uh, you know, traits that 
are better for surviving with less water, those get selected for, and so on and so on. If, you know, those mountains or that river go away, those two populations come back together or like overlap again, they can no longer reproduce. They're two different species. That is a very classic way of how species become separate. Because mm-hmm. because of all the, you know, the genetic drift at some point, right? The genetic drift, the the natural selection, uh, all, all of those different things that we talked about with how the allele frequencies change can just add up and sort of stack on top of each other to make what were the same species into separate ones. Mm -hmm. And so something that you'll notice is that at no point in this episode have I talked about how life started, which is another really common misconception that people have about evolution is that it explains how life started, which it does not. Doesn't it explain all of the life that comes next, but not the, that original, right. you know, not that, not the original spec. Exactly. This is really important because it, it doesn't say anything about it at all. And it's, it's a really common misconception used by people who do not believe in evolution. And it's like, well, nobody is saying that whatever, you know, deity created life in your, particular belief system. No one's saying that that didn't happen or could not have happened. Well, I mean, there's some people that are saying that, but well, that is yes. not, but that's that's not, not what evolution is saying. Yes. And for example, Darwin's book, you know, his, his most famous book is called On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection. Usually we just call it On the Origin of Species. Mm-hmm. It, it is not the or- On the Origin of Life. It is a book. That's an interesting distinction. On the origin of species from other species. At, at no point does he talk about how life gets started. So that's that, not what he was looking at, right? No, that's not at all what he was looking at. And so that is pretty much where I want to, to leave things here. With that, evolution is... Even though this was a really complex episode, and I'm sure that I lost some folks along the way, I even lost myself at one point, uh, <laughs> uh, that it is, in, in its barest form, it is simpler than most people think it is. And most people think that it is something that it's not. When, I when, actually think you did a, like a pretty okay job of, of just breaking down the different way. Like, you know, basically what we're talking about is how like why not all life is the same? Why do we have lions and tigers and humans and bacteria? And like when you've got millions or billions of generations of Mm -hmm. life existing, all the different ways that, you know, that those small changes can add up over time. I think that by and large, you did a pretty good job of breaking down how all that can happen and even clearing up some of my you know, misconceptions or when I was really confidently saying, oh, I understand what you're saying. And then <laughs> we, had, we had to go back and like, well, let's, let's talk about that. And so I think that actually, you know, we, we broke that down. You broke that down really well. Why, thank you. Um, and so we will not be going into uh, sort of the history a bit uh, 
about evolution. It is a really fascinating story. Maybe we'll do an episode on it eventually. Um, story for another time. Right. But in the meantime, um, we will have links to at least the two different podcasts uh, in the show notes. Highly recommend both of them. Um, if you want to learn more about that story from other people's perspective, definitely give those a listen. And like I said, I will at some point for sure uh, be, be making an episode about Alfred Russell Wallace because he is wonderful and I love him. <laughs> all right, perfect. And is that all we have uh, for today's episode? Absolutely. That's all I got. Awesome. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening to episode 44 of I Wish You Were Dead, a podcast about things that used to be alive. As a, a Syracuse University alum, 44 is very near and dear to my heart. So I'm glad we had, <laughs> I'm glad we had such a, a great episode today. We'll be back with you next Wednesday with another episode. But until then, take care, everybody, and have a good rest of your week. This episode of I Wish You Were Dead was written by Gavin Davidson and hosted by Gavin Davidson, Mike Bryson, and Fanella Campanino. It was sound edited by Mike Bryson and edited for YouTube by Gavin Davidson. Special thanks to former guests of the pod and to listeners like you.